Okay, well, good morning. Good morning. If you have a Bible, do you want to turn to Luke chapter 2? Luke chapter 2, because we're going to talk about Christmas. Yes. Um, for our, our, our lead-in, we're doing, going to do a series actually building up to Christmas and sort of preparing for it. Preparing for it spiritually and biblically and theologically, just getting ready for Christmas. And that's something we like to do each year. I think that there's some really good reasons to do that, actually, just to focus on the, what it means that God became a man at this time of year. It's a good thing to do because in the culture, people are go, they go crazy for Christmas. Most of my friends who aren't Christians make a huge fuss and spend an enormous amount of time and money on Christmas, even though for them, it's really just what it means is just an excuse for a few days off and a nice meal and some presents. But they still put a lot of effort into it. And I think as the church who believe that this is the turning point of history, this is, as we heard a few weeks back, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and made a man. This is like a huge, this is foundational to us. This is the turning point of everything. And so obviously it's right that we make a fuss about it as well and that we build to it and prepare for it and think carefully about what Christmas means and why it matters to us. And so I think there's a cultural reason to take it seriously and build towards it and think it through from a biblical point of view. But there's also a really good church-wide reason because actually if you look at the church across the world and across history, the church has often, if not nearly always, celebrated Advent or what we would call Advent. That is the idea of preparing yourself for the coming of Jesus, not just the first coming, which is obviously initially what this was about, but actually preparing for the second coming as well. So if you come from a more traditional church, you may well have come from a background where people spent the weeks of before Christmas, weeks of Advent, getting ready for Jesus to return, saying, well, people have waited for Jesus before, and he came, and we're now waiting for him to come back and to finish all the things that have been left incomplete in his first coming to us, and to banish sickness and sin and death from the world altogether. And we're waiting for the day. Lord, please come back. And Advent means he is coming in Latin. So that's what the church does. So there's a good sort of cultural reason and a good church reason to spend time thinking about Christmas and reflecting on it and meditating on what it means for God to become a person. And obviously as a local church, we make a huge fuss about Christmas as we've just been hearing with our Christmas carol services, Big Red Box and the rest. So it's a good, good thing to do, and we're going to spend some time looking at the names of Jesus, just three of them as we go. And for this week, we're going to be looking at the fact that Jesus' name means Savior. Now, the name Jesus means God saves, and that Jesus is given the name Savior, the title, the name Savior, the one who saves his people from their sins. And we're going to read a really familiar passage, but it's so familiar that the risk is that we, we sort of tune out um, and don't really see it afresh because we almost hear it, we feel it snowing as soon as the text gets read because it's shepherds, angels in it, sort of, oh, come, let It just got that slightly sort of, you know, there's a, there's a very Christmassy thing going on here. But as we read it and talk about it, we're going to look at it, I hope, from a slightly different angle that will help us see some of the radical edge of what Luke is saying in this passage. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1 to 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things and pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is the word of God. Now, this is a story of two kings in this chapter. It's a story of two kings, both of whom had it claimed of them in their own lifetimes and beyond that they were the saviour of the world. That's what this passage is about. It's a contrast between two kings. One of them you're immediately aware of, the other one we may not be. In the ancient world, it would have been the other way around. The one of them, they would think, that guy's the saviour of the world, and the one in the manger, they would have said, no, not him. And the question that Luke is raising for us in the way he's telling us this story is, which one of these two kings is the true saviour? The first paragraph introduces us to both of these kings. Okay? The first candidate for saviour of the world. Possible, you know, which one are you going to vote for? Who do you think is the saviour? The first candidate, it appears in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Caesar Augustus is our first king and the person that in the ancient world you would probably have assumed and many said was the saviour of the world. This is a picture of Caesar Augustus. Um, That isn't. That is. And Caesar Augustus is, I mean, I just think you look at him, right? I mean, anybody who can stand with their arm outstretched long enough for someone to make a statue of you, you have probably got some strength, right? So this guy is regarded, he's he's the most powerful man in the world. Um, so we now know him as Augustus Caesar, but at the time, uh, or at the time he was known as Augustus Caesar, but before he became Caesar, that wasn't his name. His name was Octavian. And so he was like one of the, one of the three guys who, who were along, formed the second triumvirate. And so him and Mark Antony, that's the ancient Mark Antony, not the modern one, and Marcus Lepidus, they formed the second triumvirate, and they were the guys who said, we are going to find and kill the assassins of Julius Caesar, and we will unite to preserve the empire. So he was Octavian back then, and he, was, he then ruled Rome between 27 BC and, eight, and AD 14. So right across the, the turn of the, of the millennia. And he was the adopted son and heir of Julius Caesar. And so he then forms this triumvirate to catch and 
track down all the guys who'd killed Caesar. Um, and then the three of them actually in the end fall out. And Octavian fights against Antony and Cleopatra, if you heard of them, at the Battle of Axium. And Octavian wins and brings peace to the empire and unites the empire and then becomes the, effectively the recognized emperor. And gradually what happens is the Senate, who the sort of toga-wearing, strokey beard guys, hand over their power gradually to Octavian, who by this time they are beginning to call Augustus, the revered one, the honored one. And what happens is they say, well, you are actually responsible for uniting us and bringing peace to us. And so they defer effectively and allow him to become effectively the dictator of Rome. And so he becomes this incredibly powerful guy over the most powerful empire in the world at that time. And he is, as I say, given this name, August, Augustus, revered one. And he is dictator over the empire. That then means he's able to establish a standing army. And he ends up building the Praetorian Guards. If you've ever seen one of those sort of togas and sandals movies in which someone says, Praetorian! And they all get their swords out. That's Augustus' invention. He fiddles around with the tax system and makes it simpler. He's regarded as making the place wealthier, safer. He drives pirates out of the Mediterranean. I imagine not in person. Or you! But probably actually just like gets the navy out there and they deal with piracy. So the whole empire is... Mediterranean is safe for trade, and he is hailed as a genius. Like He is regarded as having brought rescue to the world. He's, by the time he's died, he's regarded as having instituted or brought about the, the Pax Romana, which means the Roman peace, that is, we, we'll kill you if you don't like us. But as a result, there is peace everywhere, because everyone's scared of them. And he has coins minted, which say this, Augustus on the right-hand side, and then Divi F on the, on the left-hand side, which means son of Divi Filius, means son of the gods. So he is recognized as divine in his own life. And afterwards as well, he's hailed as this sort of divine being. And to this day, 20 centuries later, we still have a month named after him. Right? Most of us went through August without thinking that we got it from Augustus. We probably mostly went through July without realizing we got it from Julius Caesar. But we did, and that, that's pretty impressive to leave a legacy that's that long-lasting. We are talking about a serious candidate to be king of the world. Ave Caesar, hail, you are the king. And of course, that's what people thought of him. And Luke introduces us to him quite deliberately because he's trying to say, you've got two candidates for kingship here, two candidates for divine sonship here in this chapter, two candidates to be saviors of the world. Well, you and I would go, oh, savior, that's a religious term. It must be Jesus. In the ancient world, you wouldn't do that. In the ancient world, you'd say, the savior of the world is the one who's actually fixed everything. That is, hail Caesar. The second candidate appears in verse 7 and does not look anything like as impressive. And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This person looks much less promising, Right? Augustus is a fully grown man. This is a baby boy crying and presumably pretty cold. Right? Just not even, it's literally the men and the boys, right? Augustus is known around the world. So when Augustus says, let everybody be registered, everybody does. Right? He says, let there be a census. Now, no one today has that kind of power. Donald Trump thinks he does, but no one does, right? No one can say, let there be this, and everyone in the known world goes, oh, we better go and do that. That's what the power this man had. This, so then we got, a, we got one who's known around the world. We've got another guy who is being born, and he doesn't even, in this passage, even have a name, right? This is just an anonymous baby. According to, so far, up to verse 7, don't even know the name. Just baby in the manger. 
Augustus lives on the Palatine Hill in Rome. If you've been to Rome, you may have visited it. This boy is homeless. Literally, at this point, he's been born in a feeding trough. Augustus is born a Roman and adopted as the son and heir of Julius Caesar. This boy is born a Jew on the margins of the empire in the absolute back of beyond, and he's born out of wedlock to a random couple. There's nothing significant about them, really. So if you were going to look at, stop the clock at verse 7, and ask anyone in the ancient world which of these two people is going to be the saviour of the world, there would have been no doubt in their minds that Augustus Caesar was the answer, and that this child was an absolute non-starter, for all manner of different reasons. You see, Caesar Augustus in his own life was recognized as savior of the world. And I think it's powerful when we understand why, because then when we read what Luke is doing and what he's telling us and what the angel said, we can understand the backdrop against that which they're saying it and what it means about Jesus for us to see the contrast. But Augustus Caesar was seen as being savior of the world. We're gonna, this is a quote from an inscription that was found in Western Turkey. And it dates back to 9 BC, so about the middle of Augustus Caesar's reign, just before Jesus was born. And the interesting thing about the inscription is it's trying to persuade people that they should rewire the calendar to start with Augustus's birthday. And you see the irony, right? The guy we meet in verse 1, hey, we should make sure the calendar's built around his birthday. It's actually, in the end, turns out to be the child in verse 7 who has the whole calendar dated around his birthday. But you wouldn't have guessed that if you were in the first century. And this is what they were saying a few years before Jesus was born about Caesar. It is hard to tell whether the birthday of our most divine Caesar Augustus spells more of joy or benefit. This being a date that we could probably, without fear of contradiction, equate with the beginning of all things. This Caesar Augustus has been born and that is such a big deal that it's brought joy to everything and actually started the world anew. He restored stability when everything was collapsing and falling into disarray and gave a new look to the entire world that would have been most happy to accept its own ruin had not the good and common fortune of all been born, Caesar Augustus. In her display of concern and generosity on our behalf, Providence, who orders all our lives, has adorned our lives with the highest good, namely Augustus. Providence has filled Augustus with divine power For the benefit of humanity, and in her beneficence has granted us and those who will come after us a saviour who has made war to cease and who shall put everything in peaceful order. The birthday of our God signaled the beginning of good news for the world because of him. That's what people said five years before Jesus was born. And that's what the world looks like, looks for in a saviour. Then and now. That's what people look for. They say, do you know what? stability. We want that. We want stability. We want a new look. Did you notice that phrase? I think of that as being like a clothing store. They, they still use that. In, they use that in the first century. This is a, a, we want stability. We want a new look. We want the end of war and we want everything put in order so that there can be prosperity. That's what we want. That's what people look for in a savior. That's what the world wants. That's what empire is trying to provide. And that's how the worldly powers understand what salvation is they'd say well it's someone who brings you all of that because that's what human beings really need so you bring prosperity you bring stability you bring order and you drive the pirates out of the mediterranean you're the savior well done you people still think that way right that's the slogans that worldly powers have been using ever since the french revolutionaries had on their coins you know liberté égalité fraternité freedom and equality and brotherhood 
The Russian revolutionaries had peace, land, and bread. You're going to make things stable. You give us peace. You give us space. That's what we need. It happens even today. Yes, we can. Strong and stable leadership. Yeah? Take back control. Make America great again. They are appeal- These are the kind of things that people in the worldly powers do to try and appeal to this imagination and effectively cast themselves, to some degree, as the savior. Because that's what we do. We say, oh, I want to be the rescuer. And therefore, you couch what you can do as an imperial leader in the same kinds of terms as Augustus did. That's what we look for in saviors. And some of those people are great. They do a good job with the power we give them. Some of those people are terrible. They do an awful job. Some of them are more ambiguous. The reality is whether they do it well or not, the world looks for those kinds of things in saviors, and the Roman Empire was no different. They said, here he is. New look, stability, prosperity, foundations for all kind of growth and harmony, peace. You are the savior of the world, Augustus. Let's start our calendars around your birthday. So he's literally regarded as the answer to the world's problems. His birthday is the source of joy, and should mark the beginning of a new calendar. He's the highest good, filled with divine power for the benefit of all people. He's a savior who has caused war to cease and to bring peace to the entire earth. And his birth is literally gospel, according to the Romans. The birthday of our God signaled the beginning of good news. That's the beginning of the gospel for all people because of him. The angels disagree. They think despite appearances that the true saviour of the world is not the one on the Palatine Hill, but the one in the Bethlehem manger. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Right? You'll notice he's, the, the angels, if you like, and Luke are riffing off the kinds of things people said about Caesar, and they're saying, oh, no, 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 that's not, we're going to use the same kind of language, we're going we're to apply it to this guy, so you're going to see how significant what he's going to do is. Good news, great joy, all the people. For to you, this is born this day in the city of David, a saviour who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And you can imagine the shepherds going, seriously? Saviour of the world? Wrapped up in a baby? That doesn't make any sense. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Peace for everybody on earth with whom he's pleased. You can't miss it. It's as if somebody was to do the equivalent today and do the whole thing based on make America great again or strong and stable leadership. He's using the slogans of the day and saying this isn't where the salvation is found. It's found in the manger, not on the hill. Notice the massive contrast. His birthday, not his birthday, is a source of joy, great joy, and one day it will form the beginning of the calendar. So every time you, and not just you, but anybody you know writes 2017, you are acknowledging that it was the boy in the manger and not the king on the hill that ended up dividing history into before and after. 2017 what? 2017 years since people said of Jesus that he was born. Now he might have been born a few years before that. doesn't really matter. That's why people use that number. That's what it stands for. His birthday not his birthday, is the beginning of all things for the world. His birthday means that now the highest good has come into the world filled with divine power for the benefit of all humanity. Not the, not the king on the hill. You say what you like about him. He may or may not be doing a good job, but it's this boy in the manger who's actually got the power of God in him for the benefit of everybody. 
He is the Savior. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is the one who will ultimately cause wars to cease and bring peace on earth to all people on whom his favor rests. Not this one. Yeah, you've freed the Mediterranean of piracy, but never mind. Underneath all that, you'll find fraction and fractiousness and war everywhere on earth. The only one who will resolve those problems is the baby in the manger, and his birth, for that reason, is gospel, good news for the whole world. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. It's a parody of what everybody else would say of Caesar. The angels are saying it of the boy in the manger. And in the end, true salvation, true joy, true hope, true delight and good news doesn't come by rescuing us from pirates or from civil war or from Mark Antony or from bendy roads. I'm sure there was an awful lot of bendy roads until Caesar came along and said, let's make straight roads. In the end, salvation is, we need more than that, don't we? It's not enough to rescue me from those things. And a complicated taxation system. Great. I'm glad that you fixed the complicated taxation system. But in the end, you could do that and still not be regarded as savior of the world because my problem runs deeper than that. And what we do in the world is we look at worldly powers and often... We can commend them. And I, by the way, I'm not trashing politicians here at all. I'm saying, I'm grateful that we live in a nation where politicians are generally trying to do roughly the right thing. We can disagree about how they're doing it, but the, nobody's here trying to destroy entire nations in our, you know, in our kind of culture. And you think, yeah, that's good. Let's honor that and let's give thanks to God for it. But if you start going from, we are establishing the foundations for peace and prosperity to we are the saviors of the world, that point you need to be brought down several pegs. And somebody says, that's just not what salvation is. Salvation is, needs to be far deeper and richer than that. And if you're going to say it of Augustus because he abolished war effectively within the empire and managed to lay the foundations for prosperity, you have just not got any idea how deep the problem with the human race goes. You need to understand that human beings need saving from something far bigger than that. And in the end, if we think that you can be saved by deliverance from Mark Antony or barbarians or poverty, you have got a big, big surprise coming. There is a far deeper problem with the human race. I just came home to me this week, actually. A friend of ours, um, we got rung up by a guy. Who we, and we have a mutual friend and, and who lives near us. And we were rung up by this guy saying, look, I'm really concerned about him because he's... Um, he's just really low and he's really struggling. But the, the guy who's ringing us up is not a, not a Christian. He rings us up and says, I'm just very concerned about him. I just wonder, is there any way you could, like, I don't know, take him to an exercise class or something? And my wife said to me, an exercise class? She said, if you don't believe that you can actually be saved from the problems of sin and death, then the best you've got is endorphins. That's, what, that's, what, that's all I can offer. How am I going to help my friend? I don't live near them. I need them to be... Could you take them to exercise? By the way, I'm all for exercise. Love endorphins. Praise God for that. But that's not going to save you. That's not how... You need some... Your problem is far deeper than I need an endorphin bounce once a week or once a day. That is not the problem. The problem goes way, way deeper. Funnily enough, though, happily, at the same, in the same week... I was in the preaching in the church. I used to be a pastor at in Eastbourne last Sunday. And halfway through the meeting, just before I'd started preaching, 
I hear that this couple who have started, they're from around here, and they've just they've moved to Eastbourne, and they've now started going to the church there in the last few weeks. They just felt, we should go to church. They've come along, they've heard the gospel. Their lives have been totally transformed, and they became believers during the meeting last week. And they're from around here. One of them went to Langley Boy, uh, Lang, um, Forest Hill Boys, and the other one went to Langley Girls. And so they're like South London, but they, and they know some people here. And they went down to Eastbourne and just heard the gospel and started coming along. And you, meeting them afterwards, you can see their faces totally lit up. They're transformed lives. Their children, the whole family, they're like, you can see it on their faces. We don't really understand what's happened. And I'm looking at them thinking, you've just been saved. You've actually had the thing that our, that guy I was talking about was trying to get for his friend. You're trying to solve their problems, but they didn't, get, they didn't need an exercise class. They didn't, need, they didn't need a new diet. They needed to meet Jesus. They needed to be saved. And actually what the world does is the world looks for Augustus-like solutions to actually Adamic problems, like deeper, deeper problems, like sin and death. And true salvation only comes when you are rescued from those things, from the powers of darkness, from death itself. That's how you get saved. Not only is Jesus, the boy in the manger, the only person who can do that, he's the only person of whom anyone has even claimed he can do that. You go to any nation on earth, you will not find any name other than the name of Jesus lifted up as an example of somebody who can actually save you from sin and death. No one, even, no one would even think of saying that of Muhammad or Buddha or anybody else. They say it of Jesus, and it's true of Jesus, because at the cross and in the resurrection, he collided with sin and death, and he won. And in doing that, he broke the power of the two big things that were going to hold human beings back, and they weren't bendy roads, and they weren't complicated taxes, and they weren't pirates. Our problem is far deeper than that. So ever since this happened, Christians have been saying of Jesus in the manger exactly what the Romans said of Augustus. This is the beginning of good news for the world because of him. Glory be to God on high, the angel said. And we join in the song, Gloria in excelsis Deo, that he has sent us a savior who deals with the problems we really faced and won. And then in the last line of our text, we finally get the name of this savior. And it is a beautiful name. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The name Jesus is, is beautiful. It is beautiful. The name Yeshua in Hebrew, it, it means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. It means you. this is actually what rescue looks like. This plaintive cry from a baby in a manger growing up, living a normal, normal life in many, many ways, taking on sickness, casting out demons, going to the poor and broken, including them in, dying for the sins of the world, rising again. That's what salvation looks like. This one, not this one. Augustus takes the name Caesar, which connotes power and strength and worldly authority to the extent that we still use it now. We use the name Caesar in the world today. We use it, strangely, for an American salad and for dog food. I don't know why, why, but we actually use it in other ways as well. Caesar in German means Kaiser. Caesar in Russian is Tsar. We still use that word in English sometimes, even though we don't speak Russian. Oh, they're the new drug Tsar or something. You know... Because it means you have been invested with worldly authority to solve worldly problems. And when God comes into the world, he doesn't take the name Caesar. He takes the name Savior. I am going to, as Joseph was told, you've got to name this boy Caesar. No, got to, not that. You've got to name this boy Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. 
That's what they need. You, you call him Caesar and you're going to end up with someone who fixes roads. You don't need that. You need someone to save you from your sins, root it out, and destroy that which is corroding the human race. And the fact that he did and called, carried that name everywhere he went. So people meet him. What's your name? Yeshua. Yahweh saves. Jesus. He carries that everywhere he goes and he lives in the good of his name and destroys the only things we needed destroying to be fully saved and rescued. That, my friends, is the best news in the world. That is the birthday of our God signaled the beginning of good news for the world because of him. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God on high. Amen. We're going to watch a two-minute video which just brings this together and I think gives us a great summary of the best news in the world. And then we're going to sing and respond in praise to God.